everyone. Welcome to Talking Research. I am Asmita and this is a podcast that features in-depth interviews with prominent academics and researchers who study sexual violence across its different manifestations. This conversation features an in-depth discussion of sexual violence both in specific cases and more generally. If this is something that you find disturbing, please feel free to stop listening at any point. In this episode, I'm joined by Dr. Rachel Simon Kumar, who is a senior lecturer in the University of Social Sciences at the University of Waikato, Hamilton. She is talking to me about a very important work looking at the underreporting of sexual violence among ethnic minorities in New Zealand and her work more broadly looks at the intersections of gender ethnicity and policy in the context of New Zealand as well as the geopolitical south particularly in India it's a really fascinating conversation and um hadn't thought of the various reasons why ethnic minorities underreport and it's been really insightful talking about that with Rachel If you have any feedback about this episode or the podcast in general please reach out to our social media all the contact details are in the podcast description and if you need there are links to organizations that provide support to survivors of sexual violence in various countries that is also in the podcast description but that's everything from me i hope you enjoy this episode and i hope you're safe and taking care of yourself and everyone around you let's dive in Hi Rachel, welcome to Talking Research. How are you doing today? I'm good, thank you. Kia ora from New Zealand. Wow, I was going to ask you what that means because you you wrote that in your email and I had no idea and I felt really uncultured. So can you explain <laughs> what that means? It is a form of greeting. It um says it's just hello. You say that, you know, quite colloquially to everyone. You can write that in your emails. But the actual meaning of the word kia ora means be well, to be well. Ora means well, to be healthy, to be well. and kiora is a form of greeting kiora wow that's lovely uh, kiora to you as well and i'm really excited to talk to you about your research today so to get us started can you tell us about yourself how would you introduce yourself in a way that you like to be introduced the simplest way is to say that i'm a social scientist and i'm currently working in health i'm at the university of auckland in the school of population health If mm-hmm. I were to extend that a little bit more I'd say that I'm a social scientist um but also a feminist scholar I'm informed by postcolonial and intersectional approaches in my work and that shows in the kind of research that I do and I have a multidisciplinary background I have a background in psychology I have a background in economics development studies and policy and gender studies so I guess that's one of the bains of having a multidisciplinary background you can't actually say you're one thing um mm. quite broadly Um I work in the uh, wa- uh, wide range of areas including migration, diversity, multiculturalism, state citizenship, abortion, reproductive health, even urban design pollution, some work that I'm doing now, communities and NGO. But sitting behind all of this work is uh, an interest in focus on ethnicity, gender and policy. So this sort of um is the foundation of what I'm interested in, what I do. And of course violence related work as well. Mm-hmm. Um that's the academic side of me. Uh, there is also a non-academic side. I uh on the board of trustees of um 
an NGO in New Zealand. It's based in Hamilton. It's called Shama. That's the Ethnic mm. Women's Trust. It's um, been um, set, it was set up in 2001, 2002, and I've been involved with it as um, on the government's board since about 2007. And I mentioned that because, especially since you're talking about um, violence research, uh, the work that I've been involved in has been um, sort of um, come from my involvement with Shama to some extent, but also Shama is um, a sort of an avenue for us to know, see what's happening and what's um, what work or what is going on in the community with ethnic women. So there's a lot of, um, and there's some interesting work that's being done, which also informs my research. So it's kind of like a dynamic relationship between the research that I do, the work that I do there, and what Shama does on its own. And recently, mm-hmm. they've been doing some um, very important work in um, in sexual violence at a national level. I'm also, I should add at this point that what I talk about today in terms of sexual violence or even family violence research also draws on work that I've been doing with my students. So I have students um, that I supervise and they've been doing work in this area. And so some of the research that I'm talking about actually involves their work as well, their research. Mm, So really collaborative uh, Mm. research. So how did you get into researching sexual violence specifically? You know, you're mentioning all of these really interesting research areas that, you know, I feel like asking you about all of them, but because we're talking about sexual violence, how did you go down this particular path? Um, I got involved in reproductive health research way back in the 1990s. Um, mm-hmm. if you, I don't know if you're familiar with the historical context of feminist research, but in the 1990s, there was a move towards understanding uh, reproductive health as informed choices. It was there was uh, sitting behind that a whole global transnational sort of um, um, connection um, from the global south and the global north. The feminist researchers were starting to uh, talk about, look into, and also inform global policy on reproductive health. Mm. Very different from what we were seeing in India just before that in terms of family planning, which is a far more narrow and focused and a demographic kind of approach to women's health and uh, women's um, fertility issues. So I got involved with that in the 1990s. That became the basis of my PhD work. Kind of parked it for a while when I moved to New Zealand. I started working here. Um, But I had done some work on abortion. And and of course, violence is also very much built into what you uh, do in relation to all of that. In 2007, I joined Shama uh, and became part of their board of trustees. So I was starting to, if not do the research, at least be familiar with what was happening in the ethnic community. Now, Shama was set up um, as an organization to support ethnic women who were coming into the country, new migrants, women who felt isolated, women who felt that they had no sense of connection or belonging. Um, But also, Shama works with women who experience violence within the ethnic community women who feel that they can't go to mainstream services or they can't go to the police or they don't want to go to the police for a range of reasons. So they find or look for um, an NGO which um, uh, has people that look like them, women who look just like them, um, and they feel more comfortable in that environment. So I've been sort of um, familiar and aware of what's happening in the ethnic community in terms of uh, violence as well. So um, that was another way in which I started to become interested in um, family violence. And um, there wasn't a lot of research in the early 2000s on, on, on violence that ethnic women were experiencing in New Zealand. So as part of that and recognizing that Shama needed at some point research to be able to look forward and 
do work, you know, anticipating what the needs are into the future, we started to do some work in family violence. And that was pretty much where we were sitting until in 2013 in New Zealand. There have been quite a few incidents and events that have sort of um, catalyzed thinking, debate, public discourse. And one of that was in 2013, what was called the Roastbusters issue. I don't know if you've ever familiar, you've heard of it or familiar with it. No, I haven't. So the Roastbusters, which is a tragic incident, it involved teenage boys who had raped, uh, intoxicated and raped young girls. And um, and and this was loaded up on and, and put up on social media. And when the girls mm-hmm. complained, first of all, the schools that the boys were in did not take it seriously. The police did not take it seriously. The complaints were just not um, considered. You think you hear about this around the world. You think that you wouldn't see this happening in, in Auckland. It happened in Auckland. Um, mm-hmm. And um, and eventually the police dismissed the case, uh, saying that there wasn't enough of evidence. That started a petition, and over 100,000 people signed up to the petition, you know, demanding that there be more action taken against these perpetrators, boys. And um, and as a result of that, this also started to um, emerge a whole discourse on what is consent, because there was this idea that was being challenged to in, in response to the girls' complaints, the young girls' complaints, that this was actually a consensual act. So in, in light of that, there was this um, campaign that was set up that was called Campaign for Consent, you know, clarifying what is consent and what are the you know conditions under you know, which you say that something is consensual. You cannot um, expect consensual, first of all, anyone who's underage, and secondly, if they you, if they've been intoxicated or you know or are unable to um, make an informed decision about sexual activity, so the campaign mm-hmm. actually grew in many places. And Hamilton was one place they were trying to um, when, for example, university opened up, they were trying to educate young women about consent issues and where to go if they needed help. So there was a bit of a um, you know activism that was going on around it. And at that time, there was also recognition that much of this act, uh, campaign um, for consent activities were focused on mainstream populations and ethnic communities were pretty much being ignored or, or just overlooked. Mm-hmm. Um, so in line with that, um, and because it was about sexual violence, Shama started to take that up quite seriously. And um, they started to follow that with, um, well, there was a hui, hui is a Maori word for meeting a national level meeting with where we had women, um, we had providers, uh, we had counselors, therapists, a whole b- a range of providers and community or providers and policy makers all came together last year in Wellington um, at a mm. grand meeting. It was held at the parliament and the minister opened it up, Minister for um, Ethnic Affairs at the time opened the um, meeting. But what it did was it got a whole movement of, um, of interest at a policy level um, about starting programs aimed at sexual violence and consent, particularly and specifically for ethnic communities and ethnic women. Mm. So, um, yeah, so I got involved in that. But before that could get started, there was actually no information, no nothing had been done on sexual violence in ethnic communities. So the people who were involved, a couple of uh, the women who were involved in the campaign for consent came to me and said, is it possible to do some research on on ethnic sexual violence in ethnic communities? And that that's when I had two students who were doing their uh, research with me. They did two projects on sexual violence, which in a sense became the first 
piece of work on sexual violence in ethnic communities in New Zealand, from which now others are picking up and doing other things. Mm -hmm. And that particular piece, or to be a piece of research, has been published, I think, I may have sent you a copy of it, um, but it yeah. has since then informed um, that was something that they could actually take to government and say, hey, this is what the research is saying. We need money to do more or we need money to do more programs. You know, it sort of was the first step towards other things. Mm. So research that's very much stemmed from what's going on in New Zealand, what's going on within ethnic minority communities. And very much also... Um, catalyzed and also promoted by you know, mm. required by you know, filling up gaps yes. in, in in knowledge really yeah i wanted to ask you this case that you mentioned how young were the perpetrators and the the young survivors? girls the young girls were uh, i think 13 mm. or thereabouts and the boys may have been a little older but very you know young uh definitely under 18 and yes uh, yes hmm. yes it was shocking right. that what their complaints were not taken seriously and mm. it took that public um outcry you know for the police to actually take that into account and, and there is a history in new zealand there was another case that happened before then as well it was actually a historical case in the 1980s but it, it sort of surfaced again in 2000s early 2000s again, which had uh, policemen involved in rape. Um, mm. And when that came out, the public was was quite um, uh, understandably shocked um, yeah. and, and revulsed by what they were hearing. So the police have always been a little bit on the, um, you know, the, the public has a sense of mistrust where police is concerned, which is both unfortunate, but also um it, it 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 suggests that you know they need to look into their practices um, both at an individual level and as an institution right and you know when we use the words ethnic minorities as uh, british writer renny edo lord she's pointed out in her amazing book she's pointed out that when we say the words ethnicity it sort of carries a connotation that we're talking about non-white people because yeah. uh you know whiteness is the norm and people who are not white they're supposed to be carrying an ethnicity but that's not actually true everyone has an ethnicity yep. so when you're in a majority white country and you're not white that makes you minority ethnic right yes i wanted to ask you can you tell us a little bit about minority ethnic communities in new zealand yep and you know just the sort of sexual violence issue within these communities. Yeah, sure. You're absolutely right. The word ethnic is one that is complicated and used mm. in very different ways, um, you know, by different people for different um, purposes. So, you're, for example, if you have the census in New Zealand, they use the word ethnicity to mean everybody. So European ethnicity, Maori ethnicity, Pacifica ethnicity. So the word ethnicity is not something that's specifically targeted at any particular group. Um, but in New Zealand has a very interesting um, migration migration history. It goes on for not a very long period of time, but a period of interest to say from about 1987 onwards. That's when you had a huge influx of Asian migrants. You know, so migrants from mm. China and India came in later. Yeah, and for a long time they were just spoken about as migrants, and at some point they were called Asians. By the early 2000s or so, there was um, sort of a uh, people started to want to redefine themselves as an identity, not as Asians, but something that's more connected to New Zealand itself. And they started to 
politically kind of come around with the name title, you know, um, ethnic. So they call themselves mm. ethnic people. We, in fact, have um, a, a ministry, a department, official department called the Office of Ethnic Communities. And according to the Office of Ethnic Communities, an ethnic person is anyone who is not Pakiha. Pakiha is the word for European. Someone who's mm. not European, someone who's not Maori, and somebody who's not Pacifica. So that leaves everybody mm. else, you know, people who come from um, Northeast Asia, Southeast, Northeast, uh, Southeast Asia, South Asia. Um, mm. In fact, it includes also people who come from the Middle East, people who come from Latin America, people who come from Africa. So it's, it's, you know, this collection of people who's, um, that we just kind of come together under the name term ethnic. And it has a right. certain kind of identity to it, a political identity. It has got a certain kind of connection as well. So we call ourselves, for example, Shama is the um, Ethnic Women's Trust. And we have a whole, you know, women from very different nationalities who come there. But they feel connected because we are still ethnic. Mm. But having said that, the word ethnic is used differently in different places. And in some official yeah, of place, in the Ministry of Health, for instance, doesn't quite use the word ethnic. They use the word Asian. And for them, Asian right. includes you know, um, Afghanistan, Japan, China, Indonesia. So again, there's a huge diversity there. Right. As you were saying, if you put all of this, give or take, you know, you put all of these different groups together, the uh, population is about... 15% Asian, 15, according to the 2018 census, which is the most recent census we've had. So we're looking at about 16, 16, 17% of people who could broadly be called ethnic. Now, even though we have that term ethnic, even that is split and it's very heterogeneous in New Zealand. This includes mm. people who have just come in, say, maybe last year, through to people mm. who've been here for over 100 years. There are two, three generations of ethnic people. Um, mm. We tend to often conflate the terms ethnic and migrant together, but really right. all ethnic people are not migrants. Of course. And all migrants yeah. are not ethnic people. Right, yeah. So yeah. Um, it has implications for research when you're trying to, you know, count especially violence research. Who exactly are we talking about? Oh, mm. you know, so there are, there are implications at uh, the level of research as well. Um, mm. And also, these are people with very different visa status. You're talking about international students. You're talking about people on yeah. working visas. You're talking about people who are citizens. You're talking about people who are permanent residents. So there's a whole range of um, visa statuses uh, that they have. But you're also talking about different generations. You have got those recent migrants, what they call first-generation migrants. And you've got second-generation migrants. And there's some, um, you know, another wedged in between 1.5-generation migrants as well. So children mm. who came in with migrants. Um, so we're all talking about really quite a diverse group of people when we talk about ethnic minority groups. In mm. I think you've defined that really well. And it's also interesting to see how the word ethnic and ethnicity is used in different contexts. I was just Googling it and uh, for, according to Google, ethnicity, and I think it's interesting, ethnicity is the fact or state of belonging to a social group that has a common national cultural tradition. So it's, I guess it, it really just means anyone who has a cultural identity, but I can see how within countries like New Zealand or, you know, the US, the UK, wherever there's a majority Caucasian population and someone from another culture comes in and they have a separate cultural identity, that identity 
stands out and is highlighted mm-hmm. um yeah so i think i think that's quite interesting but um i don't know admittedly i don't know much about the socio political space in new zealand mm-hmm. i mean i know that you have a really competent prime minister who's handled the corona virus really well mm-hmm. but besides that i don't know much about you know uh, for example what the situation of sexual violence is in new zealand and specifically within ethnic minority communities so can you walk us through that yep sure i can um one very quick um fact about new zealand we have an election coming up so yes mm. but, um, that's another um it, it's certainly taking up some of our interest at the moment at a social political level yeah. in terms of violence um like i said uh, because the migrants and ethnic groups in new zealand are fairly recent even the literature and the research on my on violence is also something that is just emerging so when i came here i've been here about 20 years or so um there were one or two people talking about it but not a lot of research that was coming out in fact one of the earlier pieces of work and i think even when people did research on ethnic communities they didn't quite know what to do with it one of the earlier pieces of work was in fact published in the epw do you know whether you know the epw is a economic and political weekly mm. it published in india yes um, yeah so you'd look at it why would somebody want to publish something about ethnic people in new zealand in epw um but i think there was a sense in not knowing where to fit asian populations research um quite right. clearly or asian population research was done as part of a subset of you know mainstream violence research so there'd be violence research done on the total population and then there'll be a little subset which says oh and in the asian population so there hasn't been very much of dedicated research on asian/ethnic populations until more recently and i think there is a younger generation of um of ethnic women um so the ones who are doing their phd's now or in the past 5 years um or those who are doing their masters and so on who are actually interested because for them it's a matter of identity as well you know, f- you know figuring mm. out where they belong and questions of social belonging um and now we are starting to see more work come out and i'm quite excited actually at the work that is um emerging um so what we are finding out is that and one of the things that keeps coming back again over and over again is when we look at when we look at the patterns and the trends of um family violence sexual violence in ethnic communities there are some factors or facets about it that are quite distinct from mainstream populations so what's happening right. in the european or maori populations we cannot just you know slap it on and say oh this will help explain you know also ethnic populations which means that even any kinds of interventions that we are planning or any kinds of community or policy responses would have to take into account some of that distinctive different way um in which the the patterns are emerging um mm. so i happy to talk about some of those distinctiveness mm. so um for example um the if you look at new zealand statistics um and and you just perhaps just google what's the rate of violence family violence or sexual violence in new zealand and the figure that usually keeps coming up is one in three women have experienced violence at some point in their lives but if you break that down by ethnic groups you find that there are differences so for example maori women are known to have higher levels of um, experience higher levels of violence and asian women are at least on research 
seen to experience far less. So instead of one in three, it's something like one in 10 Asian women. Mm. So there is this tendency to, to believe that Asian women are actually less prone or less susceptible to violence. However, that's also being challenged um, in some respects because perhaps it is possible that ethnic women don't talk about it. And this is one of the major yeah. issues. That there's a lot of silence around violence. They don't talk about it for a range of reasons. They don't want to bring shame on their families. They don't want to bring shame in, on their communities. They feel like if they talk about it, this might have repercussions, not just for themselves within their families or their families, you know, their husbands, um, you know, the good name of their husbands, the honor of their husbands, but that people would start to look and say, ah, you know, ethnic communities, of course, they're going to behave like this towards their women. You know, mm -hmm. there's um, that, that tendency to blame culture, yeah. you know, for anything that could be beyond culture, really. So mm -hmm. there are many factors that actually prevent women from from talking about it, including right. that they probably don't know what the processes are. They wouldn't know who to talk to, who can they trust. Mm -hmm. um, they probably have language issues. Um, they're probably mm -hmm. worried that if um, the police hears about it, they might deport their husbands, and then what would they do? So mm -hmm. the economic dependence is another factor that holds them back. So there are some very specific factors that um, prevent them from um, from disclosing, from talking about it. Yeah. And this is related to what you've studied in this research piece that we're going to talk about, which is focusing on underreporting in minority ethnic communities and you know exactly why this problem persists and how it persists. Mm -hmm. And I think I think you explained really well before how the services and the support facilities they inadvertently end up excluding minority ethnic women. But tell us about your study investigating underreporting in minority ethnic communities. This was actually research that was done by my students that I mentioned. Um, mm. And uh, they looked at various aspects of underreporting and they looked at what are some of the patterns that are emerging, particularly in sexual violence. And yeah, and they found that the whole idea of honor and shame, this, um, this, this, um, this, this notion that women have to be somehow pure, um, and if there is, if they are seen to or they admit to having been raped, it's mm. almost as if they're damaged goods. It's going to impact on their futures, their you know, and then therefore the fortunes of their entire family. So they prefer to kind of keep it quiet. There's also a sense of betrayal because much of the sexual violence that you find, again, we do not have any reliable statistics on this mm. for the general population, even less so for ethnic communities. But there is a broad tendency to accept that um, sexual violence is also related to family violence. So it's done mostly within the family. Um, stranger mm -hmm. violence is of a much smaller um, proportion. So yeah. to talk about it, therefore, would be a sense of betrayal, you know, betrayal of yeah. your family. So women will not talk about it, leading to underreporting. Then there is also this notion of model minority. I don't know whether you're familiar with it. It's called the model minority syndrome. So basically, yeah. yeah, so certain, so even though you have ethnic groups, there are some ethnic communities who believe particularly they associate themselves with being more professional and middle mm. class or upper middle class. And to somehow talk about violence is to associate, as they see, with other ethnic groups. 
well, may have who may be associated with say drugs and violence and mm-hmm. and so therefore they are a model minority um and you know and and they do not want to let down their community in that larger yeah. sense yeah so that that leads to underreporting um as well right. and of course fear right. of systems ignorance of systems as i you know procedures as i mentioned all of that makes a difference there's racism within the system um mm. so again that holds women back um right and um another facet of um underreporting is also definitions so um for in the new zealand context certain um certain kinds of approaches may be clear cut as sexual violence or sexual harm whereas mm. in other cultures it might not be seen as so it might just be oh boys being boys or you know this is just annoying boy behavior mm. or this is just a boy you know like or men um you know yeah. um this research that um we had done for example somebody from another culture said um that um, if they walk down the streets this is in latin america somebody's bound to whistle at you and this is seen as flirtation and you know a girl walks past without thinking twice about it in the new zealand context that would be seen as sexual harm so there are these definitional mm-hmm. issues as well so perhaps women won't actually recognize certain things as violence Mm. and so that leads yeah. to underreporting too right that's really that's really interesting that there are things that women from certain cultural backgrounds wouldn't consider violence that may be definitionally or or wouldn't know to report as violence mm-hmm. even if they experience experience it as violence because it's been so normalized i think in india we have this concept of eve teasing i don't yes. think they're allowed to use that term anymore but it just shows the minimalization yeah. of sexual harm doesn't it yeah. um and and i think yeah so people especially you know women do sort of um internalize that oh this is just eve teasing this is just the way men are you know and it's not mm. that harmful mm. yeah yeah absolutely i think i think what you're talking about eve teasing which is essentially what street harassment is called in india it's just I, i i think that term is so it just it just makes it sound like you're you know playfully teasing someone whereas eve teasing or street harassment is often really really dangerous there was this recent case of this this young 18 19 year old girl who was studying in the us and she came back to india for you know her vacation and she was being harassed on the streets and she died due to a you know motor motorbike crash and it's i think i think that that just shows how dangerous street harassment can be and how it's so minimized but i think you you really hit the nail on the head when you say that it's not something that women from minority ethnic backgrounds may always be socialized to consider violence or something that they can report um because it's just dismissed so 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 easily yeah so so in the study that we're talking about you essentially conducted two qualitative studies right so you conducted two in-depth studies to understand what leads to underreporting and um as far as i understand you identified the the, the reason that you touched upon just now these difference in cultural meanings of violence and then the second was uh 
you said internalized barriers as a result of white male white and male gaze can you explain mm-hmm. that a little bit oh yes um that's when for example you are going to the police station and suppose a woman goes to the police station or to the doctor and she says yeah, i think I, i've been raped um and you know they might look at you and say oh, okay you are indian otherwise also you know there's a tendency mm-hmm. indian communities they don't look after their women well or you know um and you there is women feel the weight and the burden of having to protect the um the good name of their community um and therefore this is just embedded racism really um mm. and so that sort of um prevents women from talking about what they are going through um mm. yeah, and that is that is yeah a sense of what they call the the white gaze the western gaze you know that sort of thing um mm. yeah that makes a lot of sense and i think it's really interesting to hear how uh race and gender interact here to to create these unique difficulties for women um being of a minority minority background actually means that you have to confront multiple barriers which you might not if you were in your own background or home country mm-hmm. uh, there are of course other issues when you're in your own country but you know in a context where you're yeah. an ethnic minority you're dealing with gendered stuff but as well mm-hmm. as um, ethnic stuff they come to you at, at the same time um mm-hmm. and you're having to um think of your identity as part of your community you know you can't let down your community but at the same time you are also have to um, be conscious of the implications for your family within the community mm-hmm. so the many layers mm-hmm. at which um women are hampered or or feel the burden that they are they feel that they have to uphold the good name at all of these different levels mm-hmm. which is quite unfair really and it's it's, it's instead they ha- should be um at ease about or it's never an easy thing to do but you know to be able to acknowledge any kind of harm that they have experienced and to be able to uh, to report it mm. i wanted to ask you what the impacts on these women are of underreporting so, so, so of not being able to report or when they report not being taken seriously what impacts does it have on women from minority ethnic backgrounds well broadly if um if uh, reporting is does not happen it does lead to a range i mean this is uh, documented in research more broadly everything from physical um physical kinds of outcomes so mm-hmm. you know your body if you depends on the severity of the violence that you've um experienced uh, then there are stress related and mental health issues as well emotional it could be long term uh, you could um women have been known to everything from um eating disorders through to for example even they take up maybe risk habits you know whether it's drinking or smoking so a range of ways in which the the outcomes are manifest and having a sense of being able to report it means that you can also make use of the services available including therapy that you need to go you know to go through when you've uh, experienced something quite as horrifying or horrific as as what you would have um there are reproductive health outcomes you know it could everything mm. from unwanted pregnancies through to you know hurt and injury um right. yeah so all of this needs to be taken care for that's why reporting is so important um to be able to feel confident that you can report um wherever you are um that women feel that they can actually approach whether it's a formal channel or an informal channel you know sometimes you go to um say a community organization they feel comfortable talking to somebody in a community organization or say to a rape crisis center or 
um, or to your doctor. That will be a formal um, channel. Um, some women prefer talking to a priest or, you know, somebody within their community, an elder. Um, there are right. many uh, channels in which you could uh, feel comfortable reporting this. But mm. what, what it really needs is for education and confidence and support for women to be able right. to talk about and to report these crimes that they've experienced and harm that they've experienced. Yeah, and, and this sort of perspective, this, this sort of perspective on behalf of the systems that aim to support women who've experienced violence of, you know, really understanding the cultural reasons. As you said, family violence is really deeply interlinked with violence within minority ethnic communities. So, so, so really understanding the cultural reasons that lead to violence and that shape the way women experience mm-hmm. violence to, to better respond. And in a way, what we're talking about right now are actually intimate partner violence or what we consider mm. to be violence within the household. Even this, there's so much of diversity that people don't, we don't quite understand. And unless we understand, we can't, and I say we, I mean providers, you know, the, the government, mm. unless we understand, we can't set up systems to start recording. And unless, unless right. we start recording, we can't know what the extent is. And unless mm. we know what the extent is, we can't even start to think about responses. So for example, a researcher somewhere I remember wrote something to the effect there is no such there's no such thing as a generic battered immigrant woman. There are different. Mm. I mean, for everyone, it's a different story, and it, there's no single trend at all. Um, it depends on whether you're coming from within the community, whether your partner is of the same race and ethnicity as you, or of a different ethnicity. Some research has shown that where the woman's partner is of a different ethnicity, such as a European partner the violence is more severe, the violence is more, right. and the frequency is um, of a longer frequency as well. So there are many dynamics um, in play here. Within the in context of Asian communities, uh, we talk about family violence. It's because it's not often necessarily only the partner mm. who perpetrates the violence. It could be the father-in-law, the mother-in-law, the sister-in-law, the brother. So it, it is actually a family a range of other perpetrators as well. And we still mm. don't know how to um, capture that yeah, um, mm. in, in a far more formal sense. We don't have a sense of, say, trafficking in New Zealand. You know, is mm. there um, human trafficking? Is there sex-related trafficking? There is a sense in which you think it might be there, but you know, to what extent it's not actually been captured at all. Then there are culturally specific uh, forms of violence as well. So, for example, um, in 2018, there was um, le- there was legislation passed against forced marriages. It's women, girls under the age of 18, forced into marriage, uh, and that again came because of community lobbying, community uh, you know pressure on the government to do so. But again, right. we don't know what numbers we are talking about. It might be a small number, but there are uh, there is presence of that. There is also legislation right. against female genital mutilation and cutting. Um, right. And the the general understanding is that there is no cutting happening in New Zealand, but there are women who've come here from other countries who have historically or experienced cutting. So there are women living with female genital mutilation in the country. Mm-hmm. So we are talking about something that's quite diverse. I'm currently doing another piece of research on sex-selective abortion, which is an issue that yeah. we're familiar with in India. And I'm, what we're doing is my team, we're looking at whether um, there is any sex-specific abortion or termination of pregnancy that happens. In other words, if you have a girl child, are there women from certain ethnic communities who prefer to abort the child in favor of sons? Which too is a yeah. form of violence, isn't it? 
yeah absolutely you know for anyone who's not familiar it's essentially as you explained the practice of aborting the uh, if the fetus is female they abort, abort the fetus because culturally sons are given preference mm-hmm. yeah absolutely it's banned in india but it still continues yeah in india underground and i'm i would be surprised if it doesn't continue within the diaspora the research in other countries have shown so for example from canada from the uk and even the us has shown that that pra- the practices continue within ethnic migrant and minority communities mm. they come from india for instance and no mm. one's done the research here in new zealand and that's what we're trying to do to find out if there is there are if there is a presence of such practices uh, you know, currently in new zealand and i suppose it's important to explore how these different forms of violence persist because you know if if it's likely that if there's one form of violence that a woman is exposed to she might also be exposed to another form of sexual violence so for example i think it was manali desai who's a researcher based in cambridge who said on the podcast that gendered violence or domestic violence is a really good indicator for rape in india so even though you know rape is very underreported if there's domestic violence it's likely that rape also follows so, so there's these interconnections that sort of give us an idea so so it's not just as simple as or rape something as explicit as you know it, it looks it's there and it is it is yeah. something that should be confronted it's something that should be stopped don't get me wrong but it's in a sense the tip of the iceberg mm. and if you start looking even yeah. further below there is so much more going on and we that's why we need to understand it from a very cultural perspective as well the the, the manifestations are are uh, quite something we need to focus on and our systems unfortunately have yet to grapple with it you know so if you're talking about something that's as right. complex we need to have systems of accountability of data collection of of prevention systems uh, you know of crisis management which also be um mm. responsive and sensitive to the various ways in which this is manifest yeah so when we're talking about sexual violence within ethnic communities in new zealand these this is sort of a range of the issues that we're dealing with and it it will be specific depending on you know the the ethnic background and obviously you know as you said the experience is not the same for every single woman it will vary but this can be a range of issues that you're looking at and if the system wants to respond better as you know you point out that the system is not responding adequately to women who experience violence in new zealand uh, who come from ethnic minority backgrounds then it really needs to understand why uh, you know these women don't report or why they don't feel comfortable enough to report I think based on that I want to ask you what recommendations do you have for addressing underreporting of sexual violence? Oh, well, I can say quite a, f- a few things. Um for one yeah. thing we need to have better systems. We need systems which acknowledge the diversity, diverse uh, manifestations of violence and how do we start to collect right. this data? We also need data that is better integrated because like I said sometimes women go to the rape crisis center sometimes they go to their doctor sometimes they go to the police sometimes they go to a community organization and you know each time you hear a story but how do we actually capture and integrate some of this data so d- data is one of the main things and recording um is of course one of the main things that we need if you're going to move forward in terms of asking for resources in order to um and to respond to the crisis but then there's also the response itself giving women who have been affected 
immediate um, um, any kind of response that they need at that time, um, and also mm. follow up and long term uh, therapy. And and therapy takes time, and um, and it does uh, also take resources. We are very fortunate that in New Zealand um, we have what's called the ACC system, where you are you are allowed several sessions. I think they were fifteen or one year or something. Women can actually um, get free uh, counseling uh, if they have experienced mm. sexual violence. So that's quite a fortunate thing. Um, except, unless uh, for some women who come with a history of it from another country, it, that is not taken into account. This particularly impacts mm. on, say, women from refugee backgrounds, and that's uh, another group I haven't spoken about. You know, so women from we have a quota, a refugee quota, who come in. And along their sometimes quite arduous and, um, and and difficult journey into New Zealand, things would have happened, are likely to have happened. So if anything happened outside of New Zealand, that is not considered as responsibility within the current system. So that, that's a gap over there. I have to say, mm. though, say though, that um, in the past three to five years, we are actually starting to see more recognition by government and government programs of the need for um, attending to um, ethnic communities in very special ways. So the kinds of services that we are offering in, at Shama, we call ourselves specialist services or specializing in culturally based mm. responses. And the government is now starting to fund and support that, which has been fantastic. We have a program, for example, where um, we are training counselors across the country to um, understand what the issues are with ethnic women and to deal with um, and to deal in therapy with culturally based um, and sensitive and culturally sensitive responses. So that's a program that's ongoing and it seems to be um, picking up quite well. Um, and mm -hmm. so women feel more confident going to services when they know that um, the therapists or the providers are actually trained in, in sensitive, um, culturally sensitive ways. There mm -hmm. is also room, I think, for developing what is what is called preventative uh, strategies. So we want right. even before this anything happens. Now, what are some of the ways in which we can start to strengthen women? Uh, and that mm -hmm. the best way to do that is to improve gender equality more broadly. So make girls right. as much as boys preferred and loved and valued. You know, what are the ways we can start to talk about gender equality? What are some of the preventative strategies at different stages of girls' lives? So whether it's at school or whether it's at university. You know, um, there have been, um, over here we have, um, this is government-funded self-defense, there's a self, women's self-defense network. In fact, I went there myself okay. a couple of weeks ago um, and, and did a one-day training on how to, to respond to any kind of, you know, well, physical assault, which is good, which is really, really mm -hmm. good. And they're trying to, um, you know, spread, the widen the, the, the reach of that into schools and within ethnic communities. They've got special programs for women from ethnic minority communities as well. So there are a lot of programs mm. that are being done and, and being offered. Um, we are still, you know, still improving the reach of it. Um, the other thing that mm. we do in Shama, for instance, is we have what are called life skills uh, pro programs. So when a woman comes in as a new migrant, she's cut off from the rest of the world. She, she's left her family behind. Um, she probably knows no one. And that's usually a time when she's very, very vulnerable. Um, and so for her to know that there is an ethnic community and the, these life skills are about offering women sewing classes or English language classes or how to drive in New Zealand, you know, little things like that. 
But what they do is that they come and meet other ethnic women just like them, and they start to form friendships, and they start to form relationships, and that is actually quite a, that network is quite a source of strength for them. So there are many, mm. there are multiple ways in which we are trying to fill the gaps uh, uh, with the you know preventative work. There's also um, educational programs. If you get time, you can go on to Shama's network. I mean, a website. You can see yeah. we've got multi-language um, videos that have been recently produced. Uh, just basically telling uh, women who from you know, everything from Persian languages to think with us Japanese and Hindi and you know, multi lots of languages, multilingual um, productions of you know what consent means and where to go in case you mm. feel that you have experienced sexual, sexual harm. So just little information. Mm. So yeah, there's, mm. there's a fair bit of work, and uh, I think um, we have to work at multi-sectoral levels and multi-pronged responses mm. for something that's quite as complex as what we are seeing in terms mm. of sexual violence and family violence as well. Yeah, and and it, hearing you talk, I feel like these specialized responses that you're saying that you know your organization has, I really feel like every organization should really focus on having incorporating responses that are culturally not even just sensitive but inclusive to to really you know broaden the net of yep. survivors that can benefit from their services um but it's really wonderful to hear about all these different things the other thing is you have to remember is that ethnic women even when they're experiencing violence they want different outcomes. Mm. So in a mainstream, mm. say European, for example, uh, system, one of the approaches is, and this has emerged from you know um, women's centers and rape crisis centers, they go and take women out of their homes and safely put them into safe houses, refuges, you know, that sort mm. of thing. Uh, if you try to do the mm. same thing with ethnic women, they'll tell you, no, I don't want to leave my house. I actually want to be with my husband. I don't want to go mm. away into a safe house anyway. I want to be in my house with my wife, I mean, with my children and with my husband. But all I want is for the violence to stop. Mm. So we're talking yeah. about something that's quite different from a mainstream yeah. service. And mainstream services are geared for that. Go take the woman, to put her into a safe house. And, right. and we have to work differently. So our, we have social workers at Shama, for example. What they do is something quite different, extraordinary, I think. They go into a house um, and they make friends with the wife. They make friends with the husband. Right. Um, and then they try to calm the situation and then they work within certain cultural, you know, the way that you would within um, certain cultural communities. But they take food in there and they feed the husband a little bit. And, you know, and then they try to make peace and try to understand the situation, um, you know, from mm. what's going on. We must remember that we yeah. also have to acknowledge that migration itself is a strain. So again, right. there is a tendency to... Um, overlook that um, you know, one way of understanding gender-based violence is that it is um, an outcome of patriarchal system, which indeed it is. Migration adds another lens to it. There are certain, it's mm. not as an excuse at all, but it puts um, uh, um, another layer of understanding um, on the kinds of experiences that migrant communities and the, the strains that they experience, households experience. Um, so yeah, mm. so we uh, we try to work within those um, those needs that they have. It could be everything from financial um, strain through to immigration strain, um, and we we try to work more holistically with those houses, households, and families. Mm. So what I'm gauging is that it's a really survivor centric response 
of asking the survivor what she wants so you know if if she as you said if she wants the violence to stop but continue living with her husband that's what the service will try to support if the woman wants to leave that's you know the general mainstream response that as you said these services are well versed in but it's really about asking women and you know keeping their perspective in mind um and understanding the different cultural reasons or you know the cult- different cultural responses that might play into that decision making so so not making assumptions about what uh you know a, a woman in that situation will want to do because it's different yep. and you know as you pointed out there are all these different cultural factors at play so that's that's really valuable thank you for you know summing all those recommendations up and uh you know i i think this is this is really valuable for all of us to understand how we can make organizations more receptive to the needs of ethnic minority women and be culturally sensitive so is this is this line of research what you want to continue looking at in your future work as well sort of addressing the problems of or or even investigating the problems of ethnic minor, minority women in new zealand mm-hmm. i think a, a large chunk of my work will be focused on that i'm um mm-hmm. i'm my personally as well interested and tied to it yes so definitely a violence will be a strong part um but i also as i said mm-hmm. do other uh, other areas of work as well and partly that's uh, a bit of it is a bit of self care i suppose because um working in the area of violence and um you know researching in this area mm. can take its toll um and i know good mm. women who work in this area either in the community or do research and it, it does does take its toll so i guess my way of managing that is by doing other pieces of research as well which is where i've gotten mm. involved in urban design and gender i think of all things mm. <laughs> what is urban design uh, i was going to ask so this is a piece of work that i might be i will be starting um shortly i'm looking at um it's actually on environmental racism so are there certain areas where people of ethnic minority communities are living um mm. and what kind of say exposure to toxins or you know exposure to pollutants are they in worse areas of the uh, of the city than other areas um mm. yeah you know, in terms of say um poverty and deprivation um probably right. kind of doing that wow. yeah and that would make a difference again from a gender perspective as well and so we're taking it on there i'm also involved in another mm. project at the moment on ethnic women in politics so this mm. year and as we go into elections um it's quite an extraordinary um thing that we have several women across all our ethnic all, all our parties our main parties we have young women as well as more established politicians from ethnic backgrounds um so that's showing that women from these communities are wanting to now be a part of the democratic system in New Zealand um and i think this is a step into a new era for all of us so i'm also involved in studying what that means in terms of democracy gender and ethnicity that's that's fascinating you did touch upon what you do to sort of cope with the the research you know the the heaviness of the work that you do with you know sexual violence within ethnic minority communities and you know as you pointed out you're looking at it not just from an academic or strictly theoretical perspective you're involved in 
an organization that actively supports survivors so so, so you've in your work makes you interact with women who are going through really difficult circumstances and I, i'm just wondering if your research is you know it, it it has an impact on your mental health and how you balance your emotional well-being with this work there are some days when you think oh my goodness i don't think i can take any more bad news um but i have to say we work as a collective and uh, mm. we we talk to each other so there's a group of us um or ethnic women and 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 we've learned now over the years that talking and unburdening ourselves um is a way of making sure that we are we're all right uh and we also know mm. that the kind of work that we are doing is for the long term it's for the long haul so therefore we can't afford to get burnt out you know um mm. and and we support each other when we need some time out we take some time out and we come back into it you know we get supported as well um and i think it's a strength of the community that of women that i work with that um, most refreshes me and invigorates me and 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 i suppose when i look to the generation behind me i see a younger generation my daughter's generation their friends and i think that there is still work to be done and that too um um gives me the resilience to keep on working in this area that's really amazing to hear and i mean i think more power to you for all the work that you're doing but i have one final question to ask you before i let you go sure and that is what is what does it feel like to live in a country that has a handle on coronavirus i'm kidding that's not the question i was going to ask i was going to oh i could answer um, that <laughs> <laughs> i mean sure but what i was going to ask was what is one practical tip that you have for everyone listening and they may not be involved with frontline response to sexual violence or they may not be researching sexual violence but really just what can all of us do at our own levels to prevent sexual violence and to support survivors better listen to them don't judge mm. when they talk about it it is it is real um it happens um listening itself is the first and the most important step um and i think that it's also changing the language and the vocabulary and making um making it normal giving us a sense of the language really to talk about it, giving women the language to talk about it making it um all right to talk about violence uh, that they're experiencing so i think that mm. that's um the listening and the talking and you know strengthening both would be my biggest um recommendation really mm. that's really empowering to hear and i think your work as well it's been it's been so amazing to listen from to, to listen about all these amazing things you're doing and to i think really just get this wealth of knowledge that you've amassed and um thank you so much for breaking it down and explaining all of these different things and for your time today Rachel thank you so much for joining me and thank you Asmita for what you're doing i've listened to a couple of your podcasts and i think this is an absolutely important um podcast and i'm i'm really pleased that you're doing it and um and i can i hear the the ones the ones that i looked at seem to come from many different countries and contexts and and just um uh, talking about and demonstrating the variety of issues in different contexts i think it's of um absolutely in, insightful and enlightening thank you for that and thank oh. you for inviting me oh thank you so much thank you